0: So the other idea about consent is that it's supposed to be informed. And something that people don't give kids the opportunity to practice very often is to ask an adult for more information before giving an answer. Hmm. So there's this power dynamic that just happens naturally between adults and kids where the adult has the power, the kid automatically doesn't. So if you as an, an adult can sort of... Pause that power dynamic for a moment. And when you're asking a kid, do you want to go to the store with me? Allowing there to be this second step where you say, are there any questions you want to ask before you answer? Because then you're teaching them how to give informed consent.
1: On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about children. What about the children? That's right. It is time to talk about the kiddos. Specifically in this episode, we're focusing on age-appropriate education about things like sex and consent, as well as talking to kids about non-monogamy. And to help us talk about this very important topic, we are joined by Ashley Robertson, Ashley specializes in childcare and education with three teaching degrees under her belt, as well as being a facilitator of the Our Whole Lives curriculum, which is a sex education program that covers the full range from babyhood all the way through retirement. And Ashley specializes in parent education, focusing on assisting parents to increase sex positivity within their family culture, in addition to being polyamorous, kinky, and a parent herself. So Ashley, thank you so much for joining us.
0: I'm excited to be with you and super honored. I listen to your podcast oh, wow. religiously and I can't can't <laughs> believe that we're we're talking to you. Thank you so either. much. Yeah, thank you so much for being here.
2: This is a topic that so many so many so many people have asked about and have wanted us to cover. And we've always hesitated to cover it because none of us have like our own direct children. By direct children, I mean there's children in our lives, but none of us have like our own bio kids that we're raising. And so we're so excited to have someone with your knowledge and expertise on to help our audience out.
0: Thank you. I will say that I speak from a very specific set of experiences. So I can't speak for everyone, but I'm hoping to share stories and tips that might help you.
1: Yeah, so... Could we start out by just telling us, like, how did you get into this? How did you end up with three education degrees? You know, what what happened? <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> what, how,
0: did, how did you let this happen? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of knew from for a long time ago that I was going to be a teacher and did the whole go to college thing and got into the classroom and realized That it wasn't for me. Hmm. I couldn't manage all of the systemic expectations of the way that we treat children in public schools. And so for me, I needed a different way of being a teacher that respected kids in a very different way. And so I opened my own in home daycare and I've been teaching the Our Whole Lives curriculum through the Unitarian Universalist Church for the past five years. And that especially taught me that I needed a different kind of of education, one where instead of me just pouring knowledge into kids, I was instead giving them practice for critical thinking for themselves. So yeah I just didn't quite fit in the traditional way of of teaching wow. now
2: I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the the curriculum that you teach specifically first of all i'm I'm curious to know what drew you to that in the first place. and then secondly, you know the way that Jace described it in our intro was you know covering this full range from babyhood to retirement and I'm assuming that's not retirement from babyhood. that's like <laughs> actual retirement. and so I just want to know more about what what you know what you teach what the the you know processes behind that?
0: Absolutely. I started attending a Unitarian Universalist church and they were talking about this program and the youth were having their coming of age, aging out ceremony. And every single high schooler talked about how transformative their experience with the Our Whole Lives curriculum was and how it had shaped them so that when they were going off to college, they were well prepared for their whole lives, as opposed to just sex ed, human reproduction, STIs, pregnancy prevention, all that stuff. They were like, this, this is the one thing this church really gave me. And so I was like, huh, this, this is magic. I don't know what this is. And then all of a sudden, they needed trainers, they needed facilitators. And so they were asking people, would you be willing to go to this multi day training? Like, go away and spend all your time and really learn and immerse in it. And I was like, yes, that, that sounds great. And then I came out of it so convinced that comprehensive sex ed is the way to do sex ed. Basically, the curriculum starts in kindergarten, but it can be aged down easily with this assumption that our bodies are meant for pleasure. Our bodies are meant to be a thing we use for curiosity and exploration, and the bodies of others are theirs, and we have to ask for consent. And it starts in kindergarten and they're serious about it. And it's just a really neat way of doing sex ed. There's three parts to the curriculum. The first third of the curriculum is all about me. So it's what makes me happy? What do I like to do? What sensations make me feel safe and secure and whole? What's my family like? What's my origin story? Like that sort of stuff. And then the second third of the curriculum is what's out in the world. So, how are other families made? How are other babies made? What kind of love can there be? What are the options? And then, and like, what are the dangers? What is the history? And all of that. And then the third, third of the curriculum is how do I interact with the world? So, what are my values? And then how do I communicate that? How do I negotiate? How do I say no? What are my sexual assault prevention strategies? You know, like, so... Basically, they start with the most accessible information and then they build rapport with their students until they get to the end where we backload the scary stuff that most of the other education curriculums front load. Mm. So it's not fear-based. It's based on this relationship and this idea that the only right answer is, does this resonate with your values? You know, like that's the only right answer and then from there families can like continue that conversation
3: i'm curious because you said that it starts when the kids are in kindergarten but if they're moving through to retirement does the curriculum continue or is it also for people who are who have children who need to be implementing the skills found in the curriculum for their kids? Or can you explain that a little bit? I'm just like, how does it move to infinity and beyond with people?
0: <laughs> so each each facilitator gets trained in an age group. Got it. So I was trained in elementary and then middle school and then high school. So I've done the, the youth Portion, And then there is continued training. So if someone prefers to work specifically with just adults, there is an adult training. And then now they've expanded to older adults. And the curriculum is specific to the age group. It's not like you take the adult curriculum in order to implement it with your kids. You take the adult curriculum in order to do self-work for yourself. If you're interested in using strategies and lessons and workshops with your kids, then you would use the age appropriate curriculum directly with your kids.
3: So cool. I can I know yeah. of quite a few adults who could use that <laughs> training <later laughs> in sure. life. Oh, I yeah. feel like
2: all of us, I, I it's I'm just having my mind blown just thinking about the idea of having sex education where like you were saying, the scary stuff is backloaded instead of front loaded. That's, I I can't even wrap my brain around what that must be like. Because if I think about all of my sex education, it's like, that's the most salient, vibrant, vivid thing that stands out in your mind is all the horrible textures. Show all the pictures. Exactly. (laughs) Is, and that that's like, you know, and just kind of dreading going to sex ed class because it's just going to be a bummer the entire time. Like it's absolutely wild to me to think about starting from such a young age, your first conversations about sex and your bodies and consent are a positive thing is just
3: wild
0: yeah I'm curious from your perspective what did you feel about sex ed when you were growing up
3: (laughs) (laughs) a little titillated actually like it was absolutely yeah because I think I was also trying to understand and figure out like where I fit into the world sexually and that you know or my sexual identity as well and that's not something that in my opinion, schools in nineteen nineties and two thousands like did anything to help you with. No. But it was no. fascinating. And mine were co-ed too. So that also like I think they were. Maybe I'm lying to all of my our <laughs> listeners, but I remember boys being there too. So
1: yeah, I think I think most of mine was just in the classroom, like your normal yeah. classroom teacher and fourth grade or fifth grade or whatever would do this. I don't think we had any until I was fifth grade. was like the first Yeah, I think fourth or fifth grade for sure. Yeah. Oh, I went to
2: Christian school. So my first sex ed classes were definitely very much, you know, segregated, very, very intensely Mm. and never spoken about outside of just sex ed class. And I don't think it... And I I mean, I I had co-ed classes in high school and stuff like that, but I don't think I actually had like a really good sex ed class where i actually learned interesting stuff that felt relevant to myself in my life until i was in college and i voluntarily chose to take a human sexuality class yeah i feel really glad that i did that because i think that if i hadn't i would have the you know christian school sex education
1: yeah I, i think to my parents credit i think the best sex education i got was actually a book that my mom bought for me It was like the, you know, what's happening to my body book for boys or something, you know, one of those kind (laughs) of girls version of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I was fascinated. I was so into this book because I am also a nerd. So I was like, wow, science and anatomy. And you know, this is cool. And, and I think that I learned a lot of technical stuff there. But what's really interesting to me is that with all of us and I'm like still can't even wrap my mind around what this would have been like. But none of any of it is about like discovering what you like or what feels good for you right. or how to express that or 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 how to approach things like consent in a way that's like a positive like consent is an awesome way to have better relationships I just like I'm like melting down even imagining what my life <laughs> could have been if that had been the education I got instead
0: yeah, these ideas of. Of pleasure and excitement and curiosity and novelty and all of those being positive things are just missing yeah. from most curriculums and sensuality, especially sensuality. The idea that a kid that's bothered by the tag in their shirt being validated for that being something that they can have accommodated for in a way that is sex ed. I mean, like, it's weird, well, but wow, that's that's like an early thing a lot of kids struggle with and. The way that a parent addresses just that simple sense and need can be early sex ed.
2: I think that makes a lot of sense. I think so many of us grow up socialized to just really ignore our bodies. You know, it's like we really overvalue kind of the whole head experience and really undervalue the body experience. And so then, yeah, when it comes to trying to learn to distinguish between. What actually does feel good to me? What doesn't feel good to me versus what have I been told should feel good to me? What have I been told should feel bad to me that you can, you know, grow up with all that really muddled? So it makes a lot of sense that it can start just with like, yeah, the shirt tag. Yeah. I feel like even pretty run of the mill sex education in the States tends to get a lot of pushback from various people for various reasons. Have you gotten pushback? Have you gotten concerned parents? regarding this particular curriculum?
0: The people that seek out this curriculum know about it. Hmm. And so, no. But I will say, finding places that are willing to house this curriculum or host this curriculum is very, very hard. Also, I live in Indiana, which has an actual state law that says abstinence is the only option. For public school education. Cool. And that's not what this, that's not what this curriculum is even a little bit mm-hmm. because science says that that doesn't work. So in Indiana, especially, I have trouble getting clients finding schools that will, will hire me. Yeah.
1: Right. And so it would have to just be private schools and, and like charter private schools, schools and things like that. Right.
0: And extracurricular activities that parents private pay for like piano lessons or gymnastics. Yep.
3: Wow. Wow. Yeah, but really incredibly important. And I think all three of us think about how it could have changed our lives and our early experiences with these topics. Absolutely.
0: Right. So for anyone who is in an area that has a Unitarian Universalist church, I would recommend contacting them and saying, hey, when is your next Our Whole Lives curriculum available? Because Most of the UU churches also won't advertise to the public just because of the potential issues that can cause. And so you'd have to contact the church and say, also UUA, the UUA also runs this curriculum, Unitarian or United Church of Christ. UCC. That's what it is. (laughs) UCC. (laughs) Uh, So, the UUA, Unitarian Universalist Association, and the UCC, United Church of Christ, they both run this curriculum privately. And so, if you're interested in participating, you could contact uh, your local uh, congregation and see if they have some openings. Are Are both of those... those yeah, I yeah, was going to ask, sorry, I I are, are both of
3: those churches, like, pr- fairly woo-woo? Like, not, <laughs> not going to have um, an issue with talking about <laughs> sex with kids.
0: So, the the Unitarian Universalists are based on the humanist perspective, and they're very science-based. Okay, And so so science has said for a very long time that comprehensive sex ed actually reduces STI transmission and reduces teen pregnancy. It reduces unwanted pregnancy because when people are fully informed, they usually make better choices. Mm. So the UU church is all about this, like giving us the real deal, letting us make choices. And then the UCC they 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 do church they do religion differently basically than a lot of the other more staunch versions of christianity
1: yeah united church of christ ucc is the one that i almost went to school to become a pastor for way Got back it. in the day so and they're they're generally speaking a very liberal christian church it varies by church though cuz they're kind of less um top down it's kind of more each congregation gets to decide for their own how much you know we're going to preach more of like the traditional Christian values versus other ones, I think um, for those of you out there listening who may be kind of put off by the idea of going to a church for anything, I think that Unitarian is a good way to go because it's I know it's called a church, and probably for tax reasons that's important, but it's really not it's almost more like school or like free lectures about humanism and various religions. Like You'll kind of learn about religions rather than practicing them or being told this one's the right one. Uh, So for those of you out there kind of worried about that, uh, hopefully... Or like me who don't know
3: anything about church at all, (laughs) except for drunk Bible study. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right. So let's get into a little bit more about the actual curriculum that you teach, as well as I guess things you've learned through your education experience. But... I think a place to start is you mentioned that your training was in this like elementary and then middle school and then what, like, how would you summarize some of the differences there so that maybe our listeners, if they have elementary schoolers or middle schoolers or high schoolers in their life, they kind of have a sense of what are some of these actual best practices rather than just kind of. Conventional wisdom about what people should be told, but like, what really are some of the best practices in talking to each of those age groups?
0: So, with elementary school students, kids, especially when you're talking about sex stuff, they're logical. They're interested in information. They're seeking to learn about the world. And it's very much heady. It's not so emotional. It's not so embarrassable. It's just the facts. And so this is why all sex educators are saying have these conversations early and often. Because if you can front load tons of information in these early years when they're just sponges soaking it in, it's to your benefit in in all ways and to your kids' benefit. In middle school, there's a switch from aligning yourself with your parents and aligning yourself with adults of authority and seeking to please. And instead, there is this alignment with peers that starts to happen. And so in middle school, sex ed becomes more of this embarrassment thing that starts to happen but I'm going to say it is possible for this to be done right and done well where that's not the case. So th- I'm speaking in general terms. So this is when a middle schooler is going to start the eye rolling when an adult tries to have a conversation with them or the avoidance tactics and all that sort of thing. That's that's middle school. And during this time, it's it's better if those conversations are really, really, really short. So mm. instead of it trying to be this like we're going to sit down and have this thing instead of that happening. If it's done with humor or if it's done through shared TikToks or if it's done through text messaging and regularly, then you're going to have your kid's attention and you're going to have more success. Uh, this is also when middle school is also when kids start share like sharing and comparing information. So it's like, I, I heard this, I heard this mostly because they're not yet using the information. So that's the big jump that happens in high school. In middle school, they're still learning and thinking about these topics, but they're not necessarily doing anything. So that's the big switch to high school, is this is where we want want, as sexual educators, we want to have already given them as much information as possible before they get to high school, because in high school is when they're clarifying their values, they're clarifying their beliefs, they're clarifying like who's in their circle and who's not, and starting to act on the information that they that they have. So that that freedom of getting a license, that freedom of having a job and having money, that that freedom that starts to happen in high school, if we've already shared as much information as possible before this they're better prepared.
2: I am really curious, though, to hear. So I feel like I can visualize, you know, having a conversation with a, you know, younger child, elementary age child, you know, and like you said, kind of focusing on the facts, very logical, giving a lot of information. When you start getting into maybe share a TikTok and have a short conversation with your (laughs) middle schooler, that's where I start to to lose a sense of like, oh my God, what does it even look like? So I guess I was wondering, do you have examples of stuff that you've seen parents do? around that age, like especially the middle school, high school age that, that you've seen be really successful.
0: So there's this one mom who, whenever her like teenage son is with her at the grocery store, they always walk down the aisle of condoms. Like she, she's the one pushing the cart. And so she's the one that's like charting the path of the grocery store. And so she just, they just always walk past it. And so it's one of those things where not a lot is said, but the mom will just be like, yep, there's the condoms, use one if you're going to do anything, you know, and then they just keep going. So instead of it being this like big thing where, oh, we're going condom shopping today, oh, mom's going to show me all the condoms, I am dreading this, I'm sweating, like, (laughs) well, instead of that, Mm -hmm. it's just like the thing. He's like, yeah, mom, seriously, every time, you know, but every time this mom does it. So that's one example of like a thing that someone I know does. Another one, I'm trying to think, the creating a personal care kit is is mm. also something that, ha- that can happen. Actually, that's almost like late elementary school. But basically this idea that a parent wants their menstruating kid to be prepared and for it not to be shameful or, or weird. So the parent intentionally creates a kit. like Maybe it's just in a little Ipsy bag, but it's available. It has a change of leggings, change of underwear, pad and tampon, and maybe a little personal wipe in there with a little Ziploc bag for anything that's messy. And in that way, the mom is saying, like, there's nothing shameful about this, but I want you to be prepared and I'm going to help you and I'm a safe place to have this conversation.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you put it that way, it feels very doable. You know, that and like the fact that the conversation doesn't have to be this like super after school PSA thing where your teenager is like super engaged and hooked into it, that it can be this like weird little awkward interaction. But it still, it seems like the really important part of it is like the
0: Yes. And making it just like this is not
2: a taboo and the repetition.
0: Yes.
3: I guess on the flip side, what are some common mistakes that parents or caregivers make for their kids of like... Middle school and elementary school and high school age.
0: The one I know that is done with love and care, and so it's not done with any malintention, is to say, I'm always available. You can ask me any questions. Mm. This mm-hmm. is that thing that is like meant out of love, right? But what it does is take the responsibility off of the shoulder of the adult and put the entire responsibility into the lap of the youth. Instead, adults should be saying something like, I'm going to continue to ask you these questions because this is important. And I know that there are going to be things that come up. So I'm here for I'm here for questions, but just know I'm going to continue interjecting into your life because this is important information. So creating a different way of saying I'm here if you have questions, but making sure that they know you're still going to spearhead those conversations, you're still going to take on that responsibility. You're not just like, this is a one time thing I'm gonna say and then that's it.
1: Very cool. So when it when you were talking about these different ages, right, where and I still this it makes total sense, but it was really surprising when you said, you know, elementary schoolers, you know, young kids, they're very logical and non-emotional about it. It's like, yeah, of course, because it doesn't matter to them. <laughs> you know, it's not like there aren't stakes for them yet. It is just like learning about the world. And that's first of all mind blowing to think of it that way and, and I love that, but then you were talking about you know middle school and then into high school we're kind of getting into where they're sharing information they're you know kind of learning things and then starting to apply them, develop their own values and I would imagine also that's the age where porn starts becoming a part of people's sexual education for good or bad, and so I'm curious how does the curriculum and you know what you've seen how does how is that addressed i know that when we posted about this for our patrons there you know some people talking about like a lot of their focuses on trying to you know prevent their children from having access to porn whereas others it's like maybe we talk to them about it more and and kind of i'm just curious what what does the curriculum say about that how is that addressed
0: so there's one workshop about pornography in the high school hmm. curriculum and it's it's a little lean for my opinion, basically saying pornography is for eighteen year olds and older. It's for adults. I say that that's lean because I think that that is the law. But the reality is that youth have access to a lot of things. So I in-
3: definitely watched porn before I was eighteen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I would prefer that content to talk more about sources for ethical porn and to talk more about like collaborative problem solving with your youth, your kid. So the idea being you as a parent come to your kid and you say, this is a problem that I see. I I see that I I keep having like hits on my, my I, I don't even know the right words right now. <laughs> I, I keep seeing hits for on sites that are not supposed to be something that Mm. you're looking at. But I think that there's a need here that you're trying to fulfill. What are some solutions we could come to 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 manage this? So instead of it just being like, I'm the hammer, I'm bringing down the hammer. Instead Mm. of it being that kind of parenting style, being more collaborative about it, saying, you know, I, I see this happening, it is a problem. I think there's a need that's not met. And it's my job as your parent to acknowledge those needs and meet your needs. So how can we do this and figure this out together? And in those situations, even for elementary school kids, there are resources for age-appropriate images that kids can see. And, for example, in the Our Whole Lives elementary curriculum, each kid is supposed to have a doodle journal specifically for drawing penises and boobs and vulvas and butts because then Fun. yeah, because then like they're not doing it at school at inappropriate places on their assignments. They have a place where it is safe and acceptable for them to explore that. And so it's that sort of thing. If you're a high school is high schooler is interested and curious and has a need, there should be accessible resources for fulfilling that need, especially erotica, because erotica is one of those things that they can write or they can read and it's up to their own imagination to fill in the pictures for some of them
3: finally, before we go into our quick break, I just wanted to ask about talking about non-monogamy. I'm not sure if that's something that comes up in the curriculum, but... <laughs> I put it in how... there. You put it in there. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, yeah. So how does one even get into age-appropriate conversations with kids on that subject? And is there a threshold in terms of like time period at which one should begin talking about it? Or can you kind of, yeah, talk about
0: So there's at least two workshops about family diversity. One of them is specifically like what can families look like? And then the other one is more how are babies made? So one happens early on in the curriculum and one happens later. And the goal with the first one is to get kids and youth to recognize that their world is not the only right world like you know whatever your family looks like is not the right one that there's all kinds and we read lots of children's books and there's there's illustrations and pictures that all of all of the different varieties that people can think of and then in the later version of the workshop the goal is to validate people that are creating a family through adoption or IVF or so many other things <laughs> surrogacy you know just there's There's a place for everyone and it's okay however you came into your family. I have found a couple of children's books that have an illustration that is not described in the text. And so the illustration could be a family of two moms and one dad. And so as I'm reading through with a group or my own kids, I can have those conversations and say like, what do you think? this family is made out of like, do you think this is an aunt? Do you think this is a babysitter? Do you think this is a second mom? And they have three adults in their family and the pictures actually show more content than the words do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think it's easier early on because again, Uh kids are like, Oh, this is just how it is. But if you get to it later, if you get to, to this conversation later, it's a little more complex. Our goal is always to share with kids an answer to their question, but not overshare. Like that's that's our goal Mm. as parents. (laughs) We want to make sure we understand the question first. And then so that, so we're actually like clarifying, what are you actually asking this? Because sometimes the questions can be unclear. And then we're answering their question, but they're not usually kids, especially middle schoolers and high schoolers. They're not usually asking about a parent's personal life, necessarily, that's usually more of like, didn't want to know that. So our goal, (laughs) yeah, our goal is to more answer the question, but not overshare.
1: Awesome. Thank you. So in the second half of this episode, we got questions from our, um, and we're going to get into more of those specific situations, some specific concerns that people brought up that was really, really interesting to see all of the different things that everyone brought up. And I'm excited for us to talk about that. But first, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this show, as well as some ways that you can support this show and help keep this content coming to all y'all out there for free.
3: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
3: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com.
2: Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. So I posted a few weeks ago about, you know, asking our patrons for what sorts of questions that they have for this episode. And so many people were like, Oh my gosh, I'm glad you're, you're finally doing this. Here's a a million questions. And something that really struck me about it is that specifically when it comes to the question of talking to kids or like kids and polyamory or non monogamy, a sentiment that I got quite a lot was that the focus of a lot of what's out there is about how do you tell kids that you're polyamorous? You know, what's age appropriate for them? And that a lot of people are like, yeah, but that's the easy part. It's like, yes, those resources are important and that's good to know, but that's the easy part. The hard part is everything else is like managing doing polyamory while you have kids is wrestling with. Uh, how the kids interact with the rest of the world whether that's your other relatives or it's their teachers or feedback that they would get from their peers or things like that that that's kind of more where the majority of people's time comes in terms of how they how they handle that with their children so I guess we just wanted to get into that a little bit as well as get into some more specific questions that that people have brought
0: I do feel, over- yeah, so I I do I- feel overwhelmed by this <laughs> feel like there are no right answers. It's so dependent upon each family's risk profile. And I am very privileged to be able to be entirely out within my community and be self-employed so that there's no risk of termination due to my relationship status. And so it's, it's hard for me to answer this kind of question without acknowledging my privilege because there are so many people that do not live in that reality. So I'm going to start off by saying that. I think one of the most important things as a parent is to always address feelings first, as opposed to content first. So, so so-and-so finds out about your parents and says something to you at school, and then you feel really bad about it. And then you come home and tell mom, like, did you know that so and so saw you on a date? Blah, 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 blah. And now they're talking about you and about me and about our family. Like all of the details of what happened do not matter in that moment. The first thing you have to deal with is feelings, their emotions. The first thing you have to deal with is your own feelings and emotions. So if you feel elevated and if you feel distraught and if you feel freaked out, that has to be addressed. It has to be named. It has to come into the space and have space held for it before you can address any of the content, because the reality of all of this is how your kid feels about their family and their family's values and who their family is and how it represents them. That's more important than whatever anyone said out on the streets. So making sure your kid feels safe and secure and a place to speak freely is your primary responsibility, your your primary interest. And then after that is when you decide as a family how to manage the content of whatever happened. That would be my blanket answer, I'd say.
2: Mm. Yeah, I I think that's that's a very good and very clarifying piece of advice to really highlight like what's actually important in those situations. And I mean that does lead to a question, you know, people were asking about, you know, how do we teach our kids how to talk to people outside of our family, whether that's strangers or relatives? And I imagine this can be not just about non monogamy but also about sex or about consent. So I am wondering, you know, in your sex education, like do we ever get into talking about And these are the ways that you do and do not talk about sex to other people.
0: So there's this idea of a a trusted circle of friends. And that Mm. idea of a trusted circle comes up in many different curriculums and many different resources for sex ed and also for kids and youth who have disabilities. So this idea, especially for kids with autism, where they might not necessarily have a great grasp on social situations, they need to be told this is a trusted person in our circle versus that's not that's not a person in our circle. And then they learn different behavior based on if that person is trusted or if that person is in their circle or not. So for example, a kid with Down syndrome is taught the people in their circle and taught they can hug and kiss people in their circle. Everyone else needs a wave or a high five. And for that example, you're teaching a set of social, socially, social expectations that go with the developmental needs of your kid. So this can be applied to non-monogamy as well. You could say there are people in our circle, and these people, you can say whatever you want to. I trust them. They can babysit for you. They can help you wipe your butt if you need help. You know, like this is our these are our trusted circle people, and then. Everyone outside of that, we have private family information, and please don't share certain private family information things outside of our circle. So, that's one way that certain curriculums talk about this as like the trusted circle. It's also a good opportunity to share this idea of bias and racism and acts of unkindness and have some real conversations with your kids about what's out there in the world and you can do that without being a majorly depressive parent. <laughs> you can you can be like this this is the reality mm-hmm. and most kids can balance that in a way that doesn't make them anxious. It doesn't make them worried, doesn't make them sad. So there are there are ways to teach about the realities of the world matter-of-factly and give your kids tools in order to navigate that.
1: Yeah. Something I wanted to hit on just because you started talking about it a little bit, but we did have a question specifically about tips for sharing with kids who have special needs or who are neurodivergent, you know, have Down syndrome or autism spectrum or something like that. And I think that that explanation of circles and kind of more explicitly laying out, you know, these are not only social expectations, but also kind of how to keep you safe and what's What's acceptable in that way. I was just curious if if you maybe had some other things having to do with just does sex education change in other ways in those situations? Are there any kind of tips for that?
0: Yes. So kids with disabilities are primarily still kids. They all have their needs, their desires, their impulses. And so it's most important to see the human before we see the disability. With that being said, in Seattle, Washington, in 2002, they did a project with a group of students, and they followed these students until they were age 21. Uh, This project included explicit instruction, um, extensive instruction in sexual behaviors, and looked for associated outcomes. The most interesting part about this study was that There was no in-classroom content that was taught. Everything that was done was done through parent education, teacher education, and social-emotional learning. So there was no discussion about PARTS or STDs or pregnancy or, or any of this stuff. And then once these students turned 21, they were surveyed about their sexual experiences and their number of pregnancies. The majority of these students had a lower than average rate of pregnancy and STD contraction by the age of 21. The interesting part about all of this is that primarily we think that students with disabilities need extra instruction and explicit instruction in order for them to benefit from whatever it is we're teaching them. And the reality of this uh, program in Seattle was that they didn't need. Sp- specific instruction on sex ed topics they needed they needed instructors that were informed about sex ed topics and parents that were informed about sex ed topics and then they needed social emotional training as opposed to learning about sex ed in order to reduce their number hmm. of pregnancies and stis so i find that interesting because hmm. really <laughs> that's that project is saying that The most important part about sex ed is being able to negotiate, being able to say no, being able to make choices for yourself, being able to say your feelings, being able to know who is a safe person to talk to, who is a good friend, who is not a good friend, like these social emotional skills that are just super invaluable. And so for a a youth that has been diagnosed with some sort of disability, making sure that they have social-emotional supports and social-emotional training and activities and workshops and practice is actually more beneficial than necessarily needing to tell them more about sex or more often about sex or anything in the human sexual health Hmm. and reproduction vein. So I thought that was sort of encouraging for people. Yes, no,
2: and it really encourages. Well, I've been on a soapbox for many years about the fact that it seems like we teach people to like put on a condom. If you're lucky, we teach you put on a condom. And then we don't teach anything, like you said, about the social emotional side of things, Mm. like nothing about who counts as a safe person to be in relationship with what counts as good communication how do you speak up for yourself like we don't touch on any of that like this part that is the relationship education and so that is really interesting to know that focusing even on the relationship the emotional the social the communicative side of it side of it rather than you know exactly which antibiotic is going to fix <laughs> your chlamydia actually has more last long-lasting effects. That's really, really fascinating. So I guess
0: for families that are non-monogamous specifically and they have a kid with a disability, I would say it's to your benefit to teach that relationship diversity is the norm, to teach that sexual orientation diversity is the norm, and to teach that gender is not a binary, and that's the norm. And then from there, your kid can basically see the patterns of society and they will have that backbone of knowledge that says everything is a spectrum. Like everything, everything is a spectrum. And instead of many, many kids, especially, they really like things to be in a box, things to be binary, things to be black and white. And instead, just continue to break that over and over and over because society is going to continue to tell them that that binary exists. But if you can let them know that that's not the case and that's just an arbitrary set of rules, then they'll be able to see the the color in the spectrums.
3: I want to pivot to a slightly different topic, uh, something that also our our listeners were interested in, which was how to talk to kids and specifically teenagers about things like kink and the appropriateness of that or if there are different ways in which to speak about it given a specific age range or anything along those lines. Can you discuss that a bit? I would
0: love to. The first thing I want to (laughs) say is that if you're talking with a teenager, try not to say you're just finding yourself or this is a phase, you'll grow Mm -hmm. out of this. Those are two phrases that teenagers really hate, first of all, so that just turns the whole listening off. And second of all, we want to make sure that we encourage them to be curious about themselves forever. <laughs> we don't want someone to say like, oh, this is who I am. And then they marry someone and then they change. And then the person's like, but but I signed up for that other version of you. Like, We want to break this idea that once you find yourself, you know who you are. Instead, we want to teach this idea of continuous curiosity. So in this way, mm. your kid is curious about kink. Like, be excited because they're curious about themselves. And that's the first thing to celebrate with them. With that in mind, it's best to find out what they already know first. So you can say something like, it Seems like you're curious about XYZ. I'm curious what you already know so that I'm not wasting your time repeating myself. In fact, find first. This is when you're going to be able to find out if they know what consent is, because that's really important. And there's a couple of versions of consent. One is yes until no, which basically means it's okay for me to do things because I assume you're going to tell me no if you don't want it to happen to you. Not okay in kink, not even a little okay. So if you notice that that's mm. the version of consent your kid understands, you have a little work to do to teach them no until yes which means no one should touch you, no one should do anything until everything is previously negotiated. So that's one thing that should be at the top of your list if your teenager is interested in kink. Teach them no until yes, consent. And then for beginners, if your kid is interested in trying some things, I recommend uh, sensual play as like the first thing that you want to tell your kid Mm. to try out. Because You can, you can like phrase it as if it's kinky, but really it's just the stuff of sex, right? (laughs) So it's like, do, do sensual play and and see, see what your partner likes and see what you like. And if it's billed as kinky, then maybe that includes, you know, like your brush a little, like their brush, their hair brush a little bit, or maybe it includes ice cubes. Ooh, that's so kinky, you know, but it's still safe. (laughs) It's sensual play. Our goal is to not mm-hmm. like jump into ball gags and and restraints and you know anal beads and like all our our goal is to be like, let's just explore what's what feels good to you and the other person. So central play, I think, is the best way to sort of steer your teenage curious kinkster first. Someone asked about repairing trust.
2: You know, someone shared a story of, you know, their 10-year-old reading a text chain over their shoulder without them realizing. I've heard a lot of stories. I've heard a lot of stories about 10-year-olds specifically. Seems like there's something about that. <laughs> yeah, that age I noticed range. that too. A lot really? of 10-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. <They change>. <laughs> yeah,
3: something clicks in their brain at something that clicks, age or something. They're still small enough
2: to be like sneaky and uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's something about that. And so I think there are a lot of people wondering about, you know, if there's something about like my sex life or my relationship life that I've chosen to keep private from my kid and they find out how do I restore that trust? How do I make it so that, you know, this can still be a good conversation, a good connection with my kid?
0: I think the most important thing to think about when we're repairing with our kid is that we need to allow our kid an out in the conversation. So it's best to do these conversations when we're shoulder to shoulder with our kids instead of sitting face to face. It's best to do these conversations when we're Mm. doing something else instead of creating this big production of we're going to sit down to talk about this thing that happened. So this can happen when you're driving in the car. This can happen when you're in the kitchen, both cooking, someone's chopping, someone's at the stove. Like The goal is to not be staring your kid down because the reality is we still have the amygdala monkey brain and When we feel threatened or put in a corner, the amygdala gets ignited and then we want to fight or run away. So we want to try to avoid that for our kid. So I'm going to start with saying that. Pick a well-resourced time to have the conversation when you're going to repair and then acknowledge that the thing happened. Like, I noticed this thing happened. You're not in trouble, but I felt weird about it and you probably had some feelings what was your experience of that leaving space for them to say oh i'm so pissed at you or no big deal or whatever Mm -hmm. let them sort of guide where that's going and then you say how you felt about it and what you think they're feeling if they didn't want to say what they were feeling like i felt like my privacy was invaded and i felt like i didn't handle it very well and i'm remorseful I think you felt frustrated and confused. And then you sort of leave space for them to say, yeah, I was. And then ponder something. I wonder if I could have done something different to avoid that. I don't want to make you feel frustrated or confused. And I'm sorry. So from that point, you've sort of, if your kid hasn't engaged with you, they don't want to share their feelings. They don't want to open up. You have done that work for them. And At this point, you can say, you know, there's some things about being an adult that means I have to keep some things private. It's not kid stuff. And you can, like, sort of state the boundary and you can enforce a new rule. This this is the strategy I want to share with everyone. There is a family I know of that has a one question rule. So you can explain to your kid. So, Mm -hmm. in these situations where something comes up like this, and it is definitely an invasion of my privacy as an adult, as your parent. I still want you to have the ability to ask questions about that situation, but I'm going to ask you to ask only one very thoughtful question each day. So this Mm. way you're telling your kid like, yeah, you can be in my business and you can know stuff, but you better ask the right question because you only get one question today. And then tomorrow you only get one question because this is my private business. So then Mm. for example, if your kid like walks in on you having sex and then there's this big, production and something happens, you can come outside the door and you can say, I know that we just had a situation. You probably feel some feelings. I probably feel some feelings. You may have your one question right now, if you would like to know what what you just Hmm. saw, or if you need to know anything. And then your kid thinks about what question they want to ask or they're like, no, I don't want to know anything. But many times you get an inquisitive kid that will ask one question and then another and then another and then another. And then another until they're getting like all the information you didn't want to share and it's invading your privacy. So, in this way, the one question rule helps them know they need to really think before they ask the question. And if, if you think that they're asking a question quickly and they're not really thinking it through, you can be like, Is that your one question? <laughs> and then sometimes they'll like re- <laughs> re- revisit that and ask a different question. But that is one strategy for these situations like, Okay, your kid found out they were reading text over your shoulder. They might want to pry into past that boundary. And it's okay if you want to offer them one question.
2: Hmm, I like wow, that. It really seems like, yeah, good. This seems a good balance.
3: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
2: Because I do think what I've noticed of a lot of parents when their kids find something out, I, at least the parents that I know, I think in my circle, in these much more like sex positive circles or non-monogamous circles, do feel a little bit of pressure of like, well, once the cat's out of my, out of the bag, if my kid wants to know something, I I have to tell them. If they have questions, I have to sit there and answer like 6 billion questions or I have to come up with an answer to it. And I do like that being kind of the middle ground, right? Of giving the opportunity to ask the question without it having to be, I have to absolutely do the information dump on my child.
3: So our listeners were interested in what the best books were to read with kids on these subjects. If there are any out there that you would recommend? I think that you talked about that before that there were a couple that you were going to recommend.
0: I have a personally curated list of oh, the, wow. best, the best books out there. I have been creating it for five years. It is wow. organized. Uh, so my very favorite book for teaching consent with young kids is Can I Give You a Squish by Emily Nielsen. It's about a little mermaid kid who accidentally squishes or hugs a puffer fish, and then the puffer fish puffs oh. up because he doesn't like hugs. Um, and the, mm. the little mermaid learns that there are other ways to show affection and that an ask needs to happen first. Wonderful You is by Lisa Graf, And in this, pic- in this picture book, it shows a potential polyamorous female-female-male family. It's, it shows all sorts of different families. It's all about family diversity. And um, basically the repeating phrase of the book is, we waited for you, we wanted you. And the we changes on every page. Another amazing book is the Bare Naked Book by Kathy Stinson. You're gonna want the updated 2001 version of this one. And in this book, there is a double page spread all about genitals and it states specifically that genitals are just for you and it's hmm. geared for age five and younger. So like this is getting it in early, which is really, great. Wow. really great. Um, I love the book Duck Rabbit by Amy krauss Rosenthal, because the entire book is an argument between two characters that are reading the book about each what, what illustration is on each page. Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? And hmm. it could be either on every single page. And so this book creates a great way to dialogue with kids about what is right and what is wrong. Like, why do you have mm. three three dads and they have a mom and a dad? To, you know, mm. Are you a good family? Are they a good family? Are you doing the right thing morally? Are they doing the right thing morally? And so this Duck Rabbit book um, creates space for that conversation. Different perspectives are good.
1: Yeah. That's that's amazing. That that's come up actually in a lot of conversations we've had about sort of no one having a monopoly on objective truth, and that mm. all of us have our own perceptions. And that book seems like that might really get to the heart of that. Yes, that's awesome.
0: Another one that follows the same line of thinking is "Penny and the Plain Piece of Paper" by Miri Leshem Pelly. And Penny is a little scribbly character, and she wants to go visit different types of print. So she goes to a map and the map key tells her, oh, you're not, or she goes to a map and the compass tells her she's not on the map key, so she has to leave. And then she goes to a coloring book and the characters on the coloring book say she doesn't have a black outline, so she has to leave. So she just keeps going to all these different. Pieces of print, and she keeps finding out that she doesn't fit in with their rules. So at the end of the story, she creates her own picture with her own rules, and then she invites all of the characters from all of the other versions of print into her world, and says, "I make my own rules." Love that book. Nice. That's lovely. Wow. Yeah. Um, In terms of actual, like sex ed the best book um, for little kids is what makes a baby by Corey Silverberg. And in this book, I love that it says some have a uterus and some have a penis. So it is trans friendly. And Mm -hmm. um, for youth that are like ages, maybe seven and older, it's perfectly normal changing bodies, growing up sex and sexual health by Robbie H Harris and Michael Emberley is the textbook that we use for the our whole lives curriculum
1: nice
2: yeah. nice that seems like a wealth of information for, for people yeah. to dive into that's so exciting yeah.
1: and we will link to that uh list that you have and that i guess is continually updated right yeah, so it's as things get constantly added to it, growing.
0: it's like over 100 books long <laughs> nice
1: oh wow that's wow. fantastic that's so great
2: excellent excellent
1: <laughs> gosh well, Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and talk to us about this. I know our listeners have been waiting for this topic for a long time, and hopefully we'll do more episodes in the future about this as well, because this is, is awesome stuff and really, really great. Uh, in our bonus, we're going to be talking a little bit about handling things like disclosure and teaching consent and sort of what's okay to say to kids that are not your own. Perhaps there are a partner's kids or a niece and nephew or something like that. I'm just going to talk about that I personally am really interested to know for my godson, you know, kind of how can I be the best cool uncle to him? Uh, and uh, so we're going to do that in our bonus episode. But before we wrap up, Ashley, can you tell our listeners where can they find more information about you, the programs that you do, and stuff like that?
0: Absolutely. I curate content daily for a Facebook group called Let's Talk About Sex Ed with Miss Ashley. I also have a website, i n as in indiana.com. And you can also, uh, I think you can Google search comprehensive sex ed and I pop up in Indiana.
1: Well, thank you so much. And to all our listeners at home, thank you for joining us. And we would like to continue this conversation with you. On our Instagram, we're going to be posting our question of the week, which is, how do you talk to your kids about sex? I'm really interested to hear how people are approaching this. And I know it really varies by how old your kids are and what your life is like. And so I think that'll be a great place to kind of see the diversity of how many people handle this. Also, if you just want to talk about this episode, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.